Anyway, welcome back. And uh, yeah, we're, we're in this course called Difficult Passages of the Bible. And uh, we're, we sort of set them up in sequence. So we're basically working through some Old Testament texts. And then there's some three or four texts in Matthew that were submitted as well that we're going to want to talk about. So um, I was looking for a pen, and then I got chatting with someone at the end of last class. But I, th- I think we ended with Exodus 20. Am I right? Or did we go beyond Exodus 20? Did we do Numbers 31? Okay, because I didn't really want to do that one again. So uh, we'll just move on. No, I just wanted to mark in here, but I, I thought, I, I, for some reason I thought that we had um, stopped there. But we'll just start in Joshua chapter 11 and uh, verse 20. Let's move this forward a little bit. So Joshua chapter 11, verse 20, I don't, I don't know who submitted this, but it's, uh, it's a good, um, good passage for us to look at. And to be honest with you, for some of you, this is going to be a review because the way we handle this text is informed by the way we handle the Exodus texts in relationship to the hardness of humanity's heart and God hardening the heart. But some of you may not have been there, so this will be new as well. So here's how the text reads, and we're just looking at Joshua 11, verse 20. And Joshua 11, verse 20 says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should not, that, that, sorry, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So you can understand that at first read, this is a little bit of a difficult text because we, uh, generally have this idea that God is sort of moving all people toward himself or that we're sort of morally neutral or that everybody needs a fair chance or all these other notions that come into the mix. I was talking with a person today that doesn't know the Lord and several times in the conversation she said, uh, you know, God accepts everybody, God accepts everybody, God accepts everybody. And I mean, there's a certain measure of truth to that, but I'm pretty sure what she meant is not true. In that God doesn't accept everybody's actions, and um, really, in some ways, if you want to define fairness from a human perspective, meaning everyone's on an equal playing field, everybody gets an equal installment of grace, well, that's clearly not true. Or God is impotent. There are only two options, really. So this is why this text is problematic. What in the world is God doing hardening people's hearts? Let's go then back to the Exodus text. And for those of you that remember our conversation, what did we conclude when we studied all the texts regarding the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart? Okay, so what was sort of the... There's ten plagues. So what did we notice sequentially in the text, Mark? Okay, so good. So to use Mark's language, which is the biblical language of the text, we have, I mean, he's right. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. I think it happens four times, if I remember. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then there's a little bit of a back and forth 
God hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart, God, or God hardens his heart, God hardens his heart. Some, something like that. And I was just thinking that if that sequence is intentional, and it likely is, then we see a progression. We see like Pharaoh's basically telling God, take a hike, take a hike, take a hike, take a hike. And then all of a sudden God, in a sense, is blocking the opportunity, one could say, for Pharaoh to soften his heart. But is that actually what's trying to be communicated there? Like is, is the takeaway to that, like are we supposed to be out of that text having conversations, why did God harden his heart? Probably not. But as I suggested last time, it's probably more along the lines of God hardens those whose hearts are hardened against him. So there's this, almost this idea, we could, we could just coin a term and call it like double damnation. When you run from God long enough and rebel against God long enough, God's general grace, it seems, is almost withdrawn, and then you're even in a greater pickle than you were when you started. So there's this idea of God, God is giving opportunity. You harden your heart, you rebel, you say, no, I'm not interested, take a hike, God. And then God sort of starts to tighten the screws and, and hardens your heart, which we're going to see in another text, maybe even tonight, might, if it's a believer, because this actually happens to believers as well, if it's a believer or a believing community, it may be to make that person an example of what not to do. Or it may be, as in the case of Pharaoh, so that God ultimately might bring glory to himself by redeeming his beloved people out of that. So again, if, if you want a phrase, a memorable phrase, I think a worthwhile one to think about is, God hardens the hearts of those who harden their hearts against him. What was the New Testament text, by the way, that I took you to that kind of has that same concept in it? Do you recall? Yeah. Okay, Romans one eighteen. What's what's the essence of Romans one eighteen? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. So this is a. What's the actual language of the text? Men suppress what? The truth. So that's, that's kind of what Pharaoh was doing. He's pushing it, pushing it away, pushing it away. So that's the, the, this is the, the actor here is man. Suppresses the truth. And then God... What does God do in the Romans 1.18 text? 18.19. Okay, so then God gives them over. What does that mean? What, what do we mean by give them over? Okay, live in your sin and rebellion. Enjoy it. See how it works for you. You know, get back to me. See if that works. That kind of a thing. But this is, this is the first step. So this is A, and this is B. And uh, again, if the sequence is intentional, in the Exodus text, this is exactly what's happening. Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. God hardens his heart, God hardens his heart. 
So there is a sense, and we could probably even think about examples from our own lives where, I know the stuff is on my hands, but um, where we disobey God and there's guilt or shame or a knowledge that this is wrong. And then we do it again and we do it again. Over time, it's like, whatever, I'm going to keep doing it. And God can allow us to persevere in our rebellion for a period of time, but then all of a sudden there's, there's this real sense of a deep disconnect from God, and you're just like full-fledged into that sinful attitude or action or whatever it might be. So God, God is not one to be trifled with. Uh, he, he, he doesn't play games. He's long-suffering, he's patient. But there comes a to- point when you push him away enough, he pushes you away. And then the idea is, well, see how you like that. Another, I wouldn't say it's an example, but another place in Scripture where I see this concept illustrated is in church discipline. And we're going to talk a little bit about that on Sunday because we're in 1 Corinthians 5. But um, this whole idea of when a a believer says, okay, I'm a believer, but I'm going to continue to live in sin. And I don't care what you say. And your brother in Christ has talked to you, and he's talked to you again, and a couple have talked to you, and the church is saying, I'm going to keep doing whatever I want. Uh, Paul even says to the Corinthian church, um, basically turn this man over to Satan, that his soul might be saved. So it's like, okay, let, go, let him go live with his other master. See how he likes it. I think that's how it's intended. See how he likes to live with his other master. If the ways of the devil and the world are so attractive, go, go ahead. Go try it out and get back to me. Tell me if it works. And clearly it does not because there's no ultimate, there's temporal, but there's no ultimate satisfaction in anything that is outside of God's will. And, and I think that's how we can understand a text like this in that these, these are nations that God is hardening who have expressed the fullness of their depravity, their wickedness against God. Not in minor ways, but huge ways. Sacrificing their children, practicing infanticide, murder, idolatry, and so forth and so on. So here's a few points I want you to think about with regard to this text. Number one, texts like this, in the most broad sense, affirm for us a cardinal doctrine, a critical doctrine, the absolute sovereignty of God over the affairs of men the absolute sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. In the text, when it talks about devoted to destruction, this is actually in some of the older versions of the Bible called a ban. I don't know if you grew up in the King James, you might say they were put under a ban. Does anybody recall that language? Devoted to destruction is to be put under a ban. And I remember writing a paper on this in seminary and finding it quite interesting. A ban is where, let's say there's a city. Um, if you go to Israel, a lot of the, you'll see a lot of this on the landscape. These are cities that have been broken down, built up, broken down, built up, broken. So there's these layers. You know, they get these cities on them or ruins. Layers and layers, some of them are 30 layers deep, so there's been 30 cities that have been there and been broken down by um, 
different invading armies. They call these Tells, T-E-L. So Tel Aviv, Tel Dan, these are Tells. And the Israelis had the idea, as best as we can tell, so do the other nations around them, that, so with Israel, when, when they went to war, they viewed it as holy war, much like Muslims do today with jihads. They viewed it as holy war. So everything in that city was not morally neutral. It was part of a whole system that was evil. So oftentimes, God says, I want you to devote the whole city to destruction, wipe it all out. You wonder, why would you do that? Like you're tearing houses down? Is that like a good use of resources? You're, sometimes you're killing all the animals. Like why? They're not sinning. Because in their mindset, everything to do with that society and people group was corrupted by sin. And it was a symbolic act of getting rid of the sin. Now, other enemy nations would come in and do that with a different god, and they had the same idea about their god. They obviously worship false gods, but that's the idea. Devote everything to destruction. And this, this does happen time and again in the scripture. So in this, in this passage, this is one of God's commands, that they should be devoted to destruction. Everything gets wiped out. So we need to understand then that whenever that language appears in the text, it's more than a military war. It's a holy war. Not all battles in the Old Testament were holy wars. Some of them were military wars. But where you have devoted to destruction language or ban language, you know you're talking about a holy war. And when it's a holy war, the ancient believers would have understood that whatever group of people they're attacking, these people are opposed to God. And so when they went in, uh, for them to hear that God had hardened the hearts of these people would have said to them, okay, these people are so far beyond redemption. It would have served as a polemic, a rationale, a reason to wipe everything out. See? So you've got to factor in these kinds of considerations, try to get yourself into the heads of the ancient uh, participants in order to understand the dynamics of what's going on. And this was a holy war, and the text tells us that. Not all wars, evidence of this, not all wars required a ban. Sometimes you could let the people go, make treaties, kill some of them, let some of them live, whatever. There's different, there's different parameters, but this one is a, definitely a holy war. So the hardening then does not relate to uh, so much to their lack of spiritual repentance or lack of opportunity to spiritually repent, but really is based on the fact that this, the, many of these people that they were wiping out had it as, a, as, as their intention to wipe out Israel. And so Israel then goes in with this idea, hey, God has put us in this, uh, given us this task of basically broadcasting his holiness by devoting to destruction all that are opposed to him. Now, um, lest you think, well, does God do that all the time or God does it all the time, that's not fair. Well, that, that's not true. Um, can you think of a prominent Canaanite that came to faith in God and was saved? Probably referenced several, but can you think of a prominent, unexpected Canaanite who, in spite of the fact that the city that they lived in was wiped out, was saved? Rahab, 
And Rahab, as unexpected of a candidate as one could be as a prostitute, to be a moral figure or moral lighthouse in an otherwise sinful city, is saved as a result of not hardening her heart against God. Um, I wrote down another reference here. I'm going to take you over to Romans chapter 10, (coughs) verse 13, where it says, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And just before that, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. So, on one hand, these people that... New Testament language suppress the truth, or an Old Testament, the text we're looking at, language harden their hearts. Uh, if they had called upon the name of the Lord, they would have been saved. So in that sense, there is um, room for human pity on all who would turn their back against God. But at the same time, there is a sense of justice that is brought about whenever those that turn their backs against God get what is due them. So that's how I think we need to understand this text. And I I would be pretty confident that that's how we're supposed to understand the text. But do keep in mind that when, um, when someone that doesn't share our worldview or someone that doesn't sh- understand the ancient world, you read stuff like this, it's going to be problematic. A few other things. Uh, through ongoing defeat, the Canaanites, who, keep in mind, so the Canaanite that is about to attack Israel is attacked and wiped out. The Canaanite, in their mindset, as with the Jews, would have viewed victory or defeat as a validity or a validation of what? Their gods. So, if the destruction is devastating and utter and total, the other Canaanite uh, cities around them looking at that, what, what are they going to conclude? Their God is false. But in the ancient mindset, if it's just a partial defeat or Israel says, we're just going to be grace, we're going to let you get away with this one, that actually stokes the fire of idolatry in that culture. This is one of the reasons why I think, even though it may be a bit of a a drag on on a certain level to read and reread and reread so many similar accounts in the Old Testament. One of the things I think is really valuable in reading through the Bible, as we're encouraging the church to do, and this may sound kind of odd at first listen, but some of you, for instance, will read um, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Like, okay, well, a lot of repetition there. And then you're back into First and Second Chronicles, and you're like, okay, I just read most of this. Like, I'm, I'm rereading it all now, and I, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a drag. A um, couple comments I'll make. First and Second Chronicles are written centuries later to a post-exile group of Israelis who'd never read the first books we just mentioned, and therefore were hearing it for the first time. But I, I actually think there's value in reading the text and, and acknowledging that it's a, it's a little repetitious. Um, that like emotional encounter of the repetitiousness of the text is, I think, deliberate as God gives us his word because it reminds us of the uh, failures of the old covenant in relationship, in comparison to the new covenant. It also illustrates the cycle that people take uh, in their response to God. So I could draw, if I were to visualize the whole of the Old Covenant from Genesis to Malachi, I could do it without removing this marker from the board. Because this is is the, the timeline. This is the visual depiction of the uh, Old Covenant. Just over and over and over again. What are these circles? Turn from God, turn back to God. Things are good, turn from God, turn back to God. Things are good, turn to God, turn back to God. That's not the sequence. You, you cannot use this in the New Testament. The New Testament is that. It's just... It's punctiliar. It's one point in time. And the writer of Hebrews drives us home when he says over and over again, once, the only repetition you're going to get in the, Old, the New Testament is, is a statement that is non-repetitious, once for all, once for all, he's once for all, 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 once for all. But under the Old Covenant, the, even the nations around them, they're, constantly doing the same stupid stuff. God's wiping one out. And there maybe is a time when they sort of throttle back on the full expression of their depravity. And then they're doing it again. So the next generation's wiping them out again. And they're manifesting their depravity. And lest you think that the nations were innocent, where do you think the Jews are getting all their problems with Baal worship and the Astra poles and worshiping Molech and Shemesh? From the nations around them. So they're getting wiped out and they're continuing. So think about it. They, they are looking at tells burned to the ground. They're like, okay, I guess Moloch isn't the true God. I mean, they just got wiped out. And then immediately they're back at it again. And then Moloch gets wiped out again or Shemosh or Baal or whatever the God of the city might be. And again, they're back at it. And this is just generation after generation. So one could argue, looking at it from a macro perspective, that the Canaanite genocide is actually an act of God's grace as he's trying to illustrate this truth. But after centuries of this, it's quote-unquote not working. And the beauty of the gospel then is God's final plan is unfolded for us and we realize that we are incapable. God has to do what we can't. And then there's a point in time when everything's taken care of once for all. Um, So what is the hardening of the hearts? Just to summarize, I'm going to give you three points. What does the hardening serve? 
The hardening serves the following purposes. Number one, it is a polemic against foreign gods, an argument against foreign gods, an example of the failure of foreign gods. Secondly, it is a manifestation of God's justice uh, against an idolatrous people. It, it is very difficult for people who do not have faith in God to understand this. But God is just. And as God, he demands and rightly demands and is rightly deserving of the worship of those that he has created. You've got to kind of lock this one down. Our notion is often that God exists to make my life better. Now, he does make our lives better more often than not, but God doesn't exist for me. I just need to remind myself of that every day. Okay? I exist to recognize and bring glory to God. So when I cease to bring glory to God, and especially if my lifestyle is marked by idolatry, then the just righteousness of God necessitates a response. Like God would not be God if idolatry didn't bother him. If he was not willing to defend his own holiness or his own righteousness. So there's something in God. His justice demands a response, a reaction to his creatures who are created for his glory who then rebel against him. So the, the, the damnation text of the Bible, the hardening of the hearts text of the Bible, the genocide text of the Bible, the destruction of the wicked text of the Bible, all point to the true justice of God against idolatrous peoples. And the third function, I think, of this text and others like it, is it is intended to solidify or shore up the faith of God's covenant people to remind them of this ancient truth that God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. So it's a, obviously a very poignant example of that and a harsh one, but it does serve that purpose. It galvanizes the faith of God's covenant people that their God, who happens to be the true God, is not to be trifled with. And this is especially important in a culture that is always within a hair's breadth of being convinced that their God is just regional or one of many gods. Uh, don't underestimate the temptation in that culture that even believing people had to fall into the trap of thinking that their God was just hanging out in Palestine. You see that in the biblical texts, um, that there's always this question, like, is Yahweh just regional or is he actually global? And I think that we have examples in the text of, in the biblical text of uh, believers that have forgotten that. I mean, some, how, how do you, this is just so strange to me. I've always wrestled with this. How do you explain Solomon worshiping Yahweh and simultaneously worshiping Baal and Shemosh? It's just like weird you think it's like one or the other. He's sort of, like, he's sort of a uh, spiritual polygamist. 
He's a polygamist in more ways than one, but certainly a spiritual polygamist. And it's because in their culture, this God sort of rule, a lot of them were convinced, this God rules this part of the land, this God rules this part of the land, this God rules this part of the land. We have, you're just reading uh, in the biblical text, Pharaoh Nico comes up and he, he's going to attack and Josiah, King Josiah goes out and Pharaoh Nico's like, you know, um, says to the effect, um, you know, this isn't your God's turf, kind of stay on your own turf. And th- there's that idea that this is just a regional localized God. And and I, I am convinced in my study of Scripture in, in Old Testament cultures that some Israelis still thought that their God was localized. He was the true God, but he was localized. Also explains why Jonah had such a problem in taking his message to Nineveh. It's like they don't deserve it. This is our God. He's kind of on our turf, and this is his land, and you know everyone else can go to hell. And um, this, these kinds of texts where you see Yahweh, the, the God they knew as Yahweh, defeating other gods is, is serving to like expand. God is like stretching, expanding their view that their God is actually beyond the boundaries of Israel. So I think that's how the text is supposed to be understood. Any questions or comments about this one? We're going to look then at Isaiah 63. And uh, same... We're actually looking at the same basic question. So many of you have rightly asked a good question. Hardening of hearts question. Several of you have submitted texts along these lines. So Isaiah 63, 17. All right. So here we have it. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. How is this text a little different than the previous ones? Pardon me? So it's, yeah, it's believers Covenant people, maybe not functioning as functioning believers, but covenant people, like God's people. And they are basically, if you just read this verse by itself, like let's say you see it on a plaque or on a bookmark, and you're not reading the context, it's like, man, these people actually don't want to have hardened hearts, but God did it to them. What kind of God is this? Like they're wanting soft hearts, and they have to ask God to give it to them because God has hardened their hearts. And then you got like a, Two questions now on the table. Why does God harden people's hearts? And why would he harden the hearts of people that are desirous of a soft heart? So you've got to read the context. Let's look at the context of the text. The whole thing is framed as a lament. So if you go back to, uh, we can go back up to verse 7, I suppose. And it says, uh, this is Isaiah speaking, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion. So this is all good stuff. Uh, We like that kind of stuff. You can write songs using these lyrics, and people will like them. 
For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So this is all good stuff, right? This is God's grace, God's mercy, feels good. We like the sound of it. Write songs based on this, and Hillsong will publish them for you. Uh, We'll sing them at our church on Sunday mornings because it feels good. But then look at verse 10. But, so this is a contrast to all this great stuff we've just read about. They rebelled, grieved his Holy Spirit. You might think that's only New Testament language. It's actually in the Old Testament too. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? So there's a, there's a temporal judgment from God, but then there's a remembering of the covenant by God. And as we move then through the text, we have finally in verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy habitation. The prophet is like crying out now on behalf of the people. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. And then we come to our verse. So I, the context almost just answers the question for us. These are not innocent people. They have rebelled against God. And now as a result of God's wrath and God's steadfast love, which are both mentioned in the text, there's for the first time a turning back. Now by God's grace, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and the mountains might quake in your presence. God does bring grace and mercy back. But these are not, these words in verse 17 are not to be interpreted as the words of someone who is otherwise innocent. They're the words of a person that just broke all the commandments of God and is, again, recognizing their hearts have been hardened. Why? Because they've hardened their hearts against God. Same thing, same idea. Now, I, I, I suspect, because in the Isaiah text, there are several allusions to the Exodus event. And in the Exodus event, we have Pharaoh hardening his heart. He's the bad guy. Think about this. He's the bad guy in the Exodus event. God alludes to the Exodus event. The prophet Isaiah alludes to the Exodus event that there probably is intended to be some sort of startling reminder to the people of Israel, hey, hey, guess what? You're so bad, you're actually acting like the guy that I rescued you from. That's like a shocking realization. You're not just bad, like you're, you're, you're like the guy I rescued you from. In fact, he uses the same language. The, the, the hardening of the heart language comes into verse 17, And it is there supposedly as an expression as best as Isaiah was rendering it of the mindset of the people of Israel. 
But I think there's a deliberate use of that language along with Exodus language earlier that is meant to drive home to the people of Israel. You didn't just screw up in a minor way. You did what Pharaoh did. And this is like a shocking jolt to them. So he alludes to Pharaoh, thereby making the believer recognize that they look and act a lot more like unbelievers. And if Pharaoh got what was coming to him, well, then they're getting what's coming, what is due them as well. Another point, let's go back several chapters to Isaiah 6. And I want to draw your attention to verses 10 to 13. Now, if you're a little bit churched, then you've probably heard of Isaiah 6. One of the more famous passages of the Bible. Maybe like top 20. And... uh, you might recall, just to kind of bring it back to mind, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up. We have songs, actually, uh, written on this passage. And the train of his robe. We have those songs. You remember. James knows them. I know James. James and I sometimes chat about the old, the old days, the old music, right? Um, in fact, when I go to James's house, he plays it for me. So... So this is the whole, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He has this vision of God, and he's, this is like the righteous prophet. And he's like, I'm a piece of dirt, basically. And uh, so he has this profound encounter with the majesty of Yahweh. And then, so this, this is just setting us up for verses 10 to 13. So then he says, make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Which is an odd prayer. It's like me getting up on Sunday. Hey, Lord, I'm, I'm going to preach here. I, I'm just hoping here that they don't understand it, that they, um, that they don't respond, that you judge them, and nothing I say, you know, there's no response, there's no obedience in Jesus' name, amen. That's, it would be kind of odd, right? But that's the, 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 the declaration that Isaiah makes. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants, the houses without people, the land is a desolate waste. The Lord removes people from far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it shall be burned again. And then mentions a couple tree species, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Isaiah is so disgusted by the sin that is prevalent in the land of Israel and all of a sudden it seems even worse to him because he's had this majestic encounter with the living God is so blown away by the holiness of God that even as a righteous man he feels like a dirtbag he then looks out at the people and calculating all the sins that they had engaged in his response in light of his encounter with God is Don't let them repent. Just wipe them all out. So this is like this white, hot manifestation of uh, 
realization of God's justice and supremacy compared to us. That's, the, that's how this is intended. So this prophecy then in chapter 6 is actually fulfilled, one could say, in chapter 63, where the people come to a point where they are, they are hardened in their hearts and um, then are, at least from Isaiah's perspective, crying out at that point for mercy. So same pattern, same pattern. This pattern is not the only, man is not the only participant in this pattern. God is also involved. So one might say, you know, here's God, here's God, here's man, here's man, here's man, and then here's God again, bringing them back out. So this cycle, God being gracious, people being stupid, reaping the reward of their stupidity, God being gracious, redeeming, reorienting, God being gracious, people being stupid, right? So God allow, and God, notice, unlike some unwise parents, for some unwise parents, the kid's going along like this. As soon as the kid starts to dip here, the parents do something to, um, what would be the word? Safeguard their child against any and all consequences, sometimes even excuse the consequences, and become the one that um, you know, lives out the child's faith by proxy. The child doesn't learn the lessons. That they're not, they don't realize because they've never had occasion to reap the consequences for their actions because the parents maybe don't believe in discipline or they don't think that a child should ever you know, be hurt by their own choices. They're always there to sort of play the role of the rescuer, probably probably because they have studied um, more secular sociology than they have scripture. And uh, they don't allow this to happen, but God allows it to happen. Like he allows even his people to go right down the tubes to places of absolute disorientation and despair so that, so that all tangible physical, social support systems are non-existent. There's like literally nothing else the person has to grab onto. And in that absolute abyss, the only person they can turn to is God. They encounter God. There's usually not a lot of conversation that takes place. Just the encounter with God is enough to reorient them. And they are catapulted forward then into a life marked by biblical success until such time as they do the same stupid stuff again. By the way, this is my life, right? I mean, we all, if you're an honest person, this is exactly how it works for all of us. There is no lasting joy in rebellion. Nancy? That's what I was going to add. Isn't that life period? And mm. I don't see it having changed much from God, yeah. whether it's parents or God. Has there been any lessons prominently been learned? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Um, I, so with regard to nations, I don't think of nations, and we shouldn't think of nations the same now as then because we're talking here about a theocracy, a nation under God. God is ruler. Even the regent of the people, be it King David or whoever it might be, is supposed to be God's representative. Unless you doubt that, reread the Old Testament because every king either did right in the eyes of God or didn't do right in the eyes of God. So every king's rule is evaluated on moral grounds, not so much economic or military grounds, which points to the fact they're supposed to be a moral representative. We're an eclectic group of people in Canada. It's a different environment. Uh, we're not a holy nation. We shouldn't even be having conversations about Christian nations. It's ridiculous, and it's dragging Old Testament concepts into the new. Um, so the, the, na the nation that God is concerned with now is his church. We are a holy people. We are a holy nation. That's New Testament language. And here we have, we do have on a micro level cycles of obedience and disobedience in our lives as Christians, but we now have God carrying us forward based upon his grace with an assurance that even our sanctification doesn't fully rest on us, that God is carrying us forward. And we have then more resources too. We have more resources at our disposal than the old covenant believer did. This is not to be interpreted as, well, then they're not responsible. I'm just saying we have more resources. Uh, we have scripture completed and at our disposal to use and read. We also have an indwelling spirit, which the old covenant believer did not have. And so this is an incredible resource that if we tap into it and think on that long enough, we'll sort of get what that means. We have the, old, we have the Holy Spirit carrying us forward. Um, so for us, yeah, we still have three enemies, um, the world, the flesh, and the devil, sin beyond, sin within, sin around. But we have a once-for-all sacrifice in Christ that is intended to atone for the sins of all men, past, present, and future. And therefore, this might sound funny to you, but the, the, the terminology that we theologians use is that we have a redemptive historical advantage. We have a redemptive historical advantage because of, in, in history, God actually accomplished something at the cross that radically alters us and puts us in a place where we uh, we actually can sin less than we otherwise would have under the old covenant. We can sin less. And the church should be able to say it does sin less. Um, but again, we there's still brokenness. The gospel is not just, the gospel, there's a finishedness to the cross, but there's also a future dimension that is not yet to be revealed when the fullness of the gospel will take effect. And the three enemies we have, sin, flesh, devil, will be dealt with once for all. Yeah. But the average Joe, what's the disparity of believing 
Scared into believing in the true God? Yes, because they needed to eat. And so they created, of course, the, the sun gods and the mm. god of rain and fertility and all of that sort of stuff. They were so tied to the land. Okay, you're talking about like a non-Jew or? Well, it seems, uh, his son, and I wrote my son recently once, and, and he said, well, yeah. you wanted me. You had me. You, you're the one that picked me. I didn't pick you. Well, you didn't, you didn't. I mean, uh, in, in actual fact, no, no person in this room that has children ever picked that child, the timing, the gender, the personality. Uh, and we, we, you could say we took two or three steps forward, and God did a whole lot more than we were ever capable of doing. Um, so that's just with re- regard to biological reproduction. But how, how are you tying that into... Um, your question? Whether there was any honest to goodness, real God fearing believers such as we look back and see. Because entire nations were wiped out and understanding the sense that they had to live and they tried to land and yeah. reproduction and, and numbers. Yeah. Um, God chose that those people mm-hmm. and they didn't even ever ask Well they just were. These these cycles sometimes lasted generations. Like King Josiah, to use him again. What? There's a book of the law? I never heard this one before. Hey, why don't you read it to me? Like, how do you get there? However, these cycles also lasted sometimes generations. And so there are bright lights in Israel. Uh, there are righteous people. There's Many of them mentioned in the Old Covenant, people who serve the Lord with all their hearts. I mean, they, some of them, see, we only have limited biographies of Old Testament figures. And some Old Testament figures, their biographies are all good. That doesn't mean they never sinned. But you look at Daniel, you don't get any information upon his sin. Like, he just, it's all the good stuff. But the reason for that is because he was truly a godly man. And others, uh, you only get the bad stuff, even though they may have on occasion did some good things because they, they serve the purposes of the writer in a different way. So there, there were bright lights in Israel. There were many people who were trusting in God. Um, I mean, we, we cannot, it, it's bad teaching to say that God wasn't gracious in the Old Testament. I, 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 because it's not in the text, I always have this discomfort when people talk about the age of the law, the age of grace. I just find that's, I know that's like classical 1950s, 60s, 70s Christian teaching. Pretty much every preacher used it. And if you've been influenced by someone who was born in that era that taught you or you were born in that era, it's kind of hard to carve something out of your head that you've just been told a thousand times. But it's, there's a, there's a, there's a seed of truth in that statement, but it's also false because same God who very much dealt with his people based on grace under the old covenant. Um, you know, he graciously revealed himself to Abraham. Abraham believed it was credited to him as righteousness. That sounds a lot, that sounds a lot like Romans. In fact, the writer of Romans recognizes that. So grace is very much present. Mercy is very much present in the Old Covenant. What isn't as present in the Old Covenant is resources. 
And the cycle of obedience and disobedience is meant to set up the nation of Israel for a radical encounter with a once-for-all sacrifice. And when you read it, even though you're not living it over the course of thousands of years, when you read it, it's sort of supposed to make you think, yeah, this is kind of repetitious. Why am I reading this again? You're going to appreciate Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John a whole lot more having gone through that round, around, around we go kind of a narrative under the Old Covenant. So there, there were godly people and plenty of bright lights under the Old Covenant. And you got, you got dulled down. Actually, that brings to mind that brings to mind another point in that Job probably wasn't under the old covenant, so God is still working with people outside of the old covenant. Uh, one of the things that's maybe a little bit helpful this is a little bunny trail, but it's a good one is um, we have this idea that we have this biblical timeline right, and we have the cross in the middle, so this is everything before this is everything after so we we write out we say Genesis. To Malachi is the Old Testament era. That's not true. Then we say, you know, Matthew to Revelation is the New Testament era. That's true. But the reason why this isn't true is the Old Testament starts with creation and the Old Covenant, Old Covenant, same word for Old Testament, Old Covenant, we could call it Old Covenant uh, era. That doesn't start until Abraham, thousands of years in. So if you actually look at the time from here to here, it's starting more like down this way. If this is creation, thousands of years, then the Old Covenant. It's just that most of the books talk about the Old Covenant, but not everything before Christ was the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant, even when it started, so how would I visualize this? Um, If... This is a stream of nations moving forward from the creation of the world. And let's say this one is Israel. So you get in a few thousand years, God establishes the old covenant with Israel, and they now become his choice possession. Well, this isn't the first time God showed up. Like God was working in the lives of men like Melchizedek, men like Job, who lived before um, before or were contemporaries of the time when the Old Covenant actually was established. So there's, there's God-fearing people outside of Israel. Like, we can't have this idea that there's literally like nobody in the entire world that is worshiping the true God outside of Israel from Abraham onward. Because we meet righteous Gentiles. And it could be that they were, had some exposure to Israel that seemed to have the fullness of God's manifestation of his divine plan. But when Abraham bumps into Melchizedek, Melchizedek is portrayed in the text as a God-fearing Gentile. And Job probably, probably lived before Abraham. And therefore, is not a descendant of Abraham, and therefore Israel doesn't exist. So there's God-fearing people outside of Israel, and God is working with them. We just don't hear about them from 
hear much more about them from the establishment of the Old Covenant through to Malachi because God is concerned about other things. Okay, uh, Jordan. Could be. Yeah, people have suggested that. Um, Which is possible, probably not probable, because it raises questions like, why include geographical references? Like, why say he's from this land and... Yep, heard it before. And that's not the only place where that imagery is portrayed in the Old Testament. Steve? Are you saying some of the Old Testament books are New Testament? No. The, the 39 books of the Old Testament, so we have Genesis, right? So you have to read several chapters into Genesis before the Old Covenant starts. the Old Covenant starts. So the, the, the Old Covenant started with who? Um, Abraham. Abraham. So the Old Covenant started with Abraham. There was a covenant with Noah. That's called the Noahic Covenant. N-O-A-H-I-C. But the Abrahamic Covenant started with Abraham. So you're already thousands of years into the Bible, the, the biblical record, before the Old Covenant starts. Does that make sense, Steve? Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Well, let's reserve that question for when we get to that text. Okay, I'll, I'll write yeah. it down. Okay. Sorry. Okay, any other questions? Okay, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lot there's a lot that can be said about that as we consider spiritual formation in our own lives. Um, you know, the whole subject of spiritual formation, how do we grow in Christ likeness and the spiritual disciplines and spirit fruit and all, you know, all that that category of Christian teaching related to Christian growth. Uh is an interesting one because I mean, I preached a sermon a series on this called The Yummy Sins of the Bible a few years ago. And I outlined all, you know, seven or eight major sins that Christian people continue to struggle with. And our key text was Paul, or the, the step, the, the text we were building that off of is Paul makes this interesting comment, and I can never get all the pronouns right, but basically what I want to do, I don't do. What I should do, I don't do. What I do, do, I shouldn't do. And however he frames that, um, he is this great saint 
recognizes that he's not yet fully redeemed. And we all know this. Okay, let's just like, let's be honest, church. Let's be honest. And I, and I mean that in the sense of let's be an honest church. And let's be honest, church, that there are many things in our heads and hearts and that we engage in that we would probably prefer that other people in this room don't know about, right? And some of it is more willful, at least it seems more willful, and others of it is like, what the heck is wrong with me? Like, I know better? I don't even like that. Why did I suddenly have that temptation or that thought, or why did I say that, or why, why do I continue to harbor that anxiety or fear, or whatever it might be? And we kind of perplex ourselves, right? And you don't need to nod, because I spend enough time with humanity that I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't know it, you're a liar, okay? <laughs> um, so there's always that, there's always that wrestling match with, um, with sin because the spirit's been made alive, the flesh is still weak, there's still external temptation through d the demonic world, which we probably downplay a little bit, and that's because the devil has convinced us that it is no longer a spiritual world within which we live, especially in the West. And then we have each other, who sometimes are our own worst enemies, right? Sometimes we don't help each other along, and other times we do. So that's just societal, like, influence some other people. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's that cycle, but sanctification is supposed to go this way. So this is, if you talk about the old squiggly lines, it's supposed to be that way. And realistically, it might be like this on occasion, or you could say like this, but the truly saved will, over the long haul, be gr growing in Christ-likeness, not plateauing. The plateaued believer is probably not regenerate over the course of the long haul, probably not regenerate. So there's a, this is, it's not really uphill in the old covenant, it's just flatlined but it's supposed to be uphill under the new covenant. That, you know, if you want to sort of use years as an example, and, and just broadly speaking, there can be ups and downs, but this year, you should be more Christ-like than you were last year. And last year, you should have been more Christ-like than the previous year, right? Maybe not, it might not mean that today, you're as Christ-like as you were yesterday. This might be a downward dip or a downward month, or a downward year. But you get what I mean. Like Over the long haul, there's a progression to sanctification. And that progression builds our assurance, too. And the, the interesting thing about progression and sanctification is it also, you would think that it would feed your ego, but it actually feeds your humility. Because as one of the undercurrents to progressive sanctification is, an, is, a, is a continual ongoing realization of how broken you are and how much you need God's grace to make it through the next run.
Did you have a comment or? Okay. Yeah. Well, some of us will. I mean, there. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what the statistical chances are. I've never thought about it, but there will be many Christians that die in the middle of one of the worst sins they've ever committed, whatever it might be. I don't know, robbing a bank and you get shot. You know. <laughs> Um, you know, or you're in so much pain, the last thing that comes out of your mouth is a blasphemous word. But uh, assurance of salvation is not based on the one-offs. It's based on the long haul. And the long haul for some is very short. But assurance of salvation is based on the long haul. But security is based on Christ and the finished work of Christ. So when you lock down in your head this mind-blowing, hard-to-believe truth that Christ alone is sufficient to redeem you of all your sins, past, present, and future, that does something to you that sort of stabilizes you through, through those times when you know, man, if Jesus, I hope Jesus doesn't come back right now. Or I hope I don't die right now. Um, so we, we needn't concern ourselves with those kinds of things, I don't think, if we have locked down the basis, the, the baseline of our salvation is Christ, and we must differentiate between what justifies us and what sanctifies us. That's two different aspects. So justification, that's Christ, that's Christ. It's not us, we don't contribute to it. You know, the Luther, don't add the weight of an eyelash to it, it's all Christ. Sanctification is us and God working in tandem to become more like Christ. The covenant of grace doesn't apply to all humanity, but you're right, all humanity is, um, well, we've always been as worse off as we can be, but sometimes we're worse than we used to be. Uh, there's also been times in human history where certain sins are more prominent, other sins aren't. Like there's actually b benefits to being alive right now, especially in a, the West, like there's things that we don't commonly have to deal with. I mean, we're not, I mean, murder is relatively rare. Um, rape is relatively rare. Um, try being a woman in India. Or, um, you know, try living in some of the uh, African countries that are ruled by warlords where murder or rape would be more prominent. So there are, there are 
there are, we need to acknowledge the fact that through the grace of God and missionary activity and the broader ministry of the church, that there's, there's many things in the West and in Western culture that actually are better than the way it used to be. We have to acknowledge that. But the undercurrent of sin is just as bad, if not worse. And so the dominant theme in Scripture is as the church grows, the world gets worse, and even the world itself, the physical world itself starts to fall apart. Um, I mean, there's, I'm not a, not like a, the world's not warming up, go run your car 24 hours a day and you burn leaded gas kind of a guy. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It doesn't even make sense to me. But the fact that there's more earthquakes, more storms, more environmental problems, it's not, it's not ultimately a result of the ozone issues or carbon emissions or global warming. It's actually prophetic in that creation itself is groaning and is spiraling downward. That's prophetic. The Bible says that those kinds of manifestations will appear in greater number in the last days. And that's what we're seeing. So again, I mean, it's not that you just ignore the human contributing factors, but we're, we're like pushing against uh, you know, this big ball, we're trying to push it up a hill. And, and it's like, you know, we, we get it going maybe a meter and then it rolls back a meter and a half. And we push it forward a meter and it rolls back a meter and a half. So now you're down a meter. So it's not like just let the ball roll down the hill. We're still pushing against the brokenness of our world in gospel ministry and ecological issues. But it's ultimately the ball is going to roll down the hill. And then the end will come like a flood. So, yeah, I, I agree. All right. So, um, okay, just one more thing I want to comment on, and then uh, we'll take a break. So, I, I mentioned earlier in this text, the, uh, the broader text talks about the um, grieving of the Holy Spirit. And this actually is uh, found in the New Testament as well. So you go to Ephesians 4, verse 30. What was the exact verse we'd referenced there in Isaiah? Was it, uh, which was the one that had the reference to the Holy Spirit? Oh, grieved his spirit, grieved his Holy Spirit. 63.10. So verse, um, so the same concept found in New Testament language, Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What grieves the Holy Spirit? Look before and after. Same thing. Sin. So in this context, it's um, not sharing, corrupting talk, after that, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, yada, 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 right? So both, both Old Covenant and New Covenant have 
a Holy Spirit who is active in the life of the believing community. He just happens to be indwelling in the, in the new, but he's active in the life of the Old Covenant community, and he is grieved when the believing community sins against him, and that then results in things like hardening of the heart. So the heart is hardened by God when humanity hardens its heart against God. And the mechanism that God appears to use in both contexts is his Holy Spirit to bring that about. Okay, okay so we'll take a break, and you can go grab some cookies and whatever else is at the back. And okay, so um, let's come back together, and we're going to look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 14. So um, Ezekiel 14, verses 9 and 10, we're sort of continuing on in a certain sense in the same vein. Same kind of questions are coming up. A little different, but same kind of questions. Ezekiel 14, 9 and 10, it says, And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, and this is the ESV, it's maybe a little more ambiguous in some translations, uh, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. Sound a little odd? And I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike. And the house of Israel, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me nor defile themselves anymore with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord. So the the question, obviously, is why would God deceive the prophet if it's supposed to be understood that way anyway? Well, again, we've got to look at the context because the broader context helps us to understand what is going on and then helps to shed some light on this text. So I'm going to go right back to verse 1. Look at verses 1 to 3 for a moment. What we have, I'll just summarize. You can be like reading it if you'd like while I'm summarizing it. But verses 1 to 3, the people are where? They're in exile. They're in Babylon. Ezekiel is an exilic prophet, meaning that he is in Babylon with them. And lots of things have led up to this exile, notably their idolatry. They're in uh, Babylon and in verses 1 to 3, the exiled elders come to Ezekiel to get his prophetic counsel. Which, at first glance, seems like a good thing to do. Hey, prophet, what's up? You know, we need, you, we need your help with this. But God tips Ezekiel off to the fact that these were wicked men. And the text says that they had set their hearts to idols. Uh, look at verse two, uh, 3. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their eyes. So stumbling block is anything that hinders faith. This is the same language that Paul uses in reference to meat offered unto idols to the Corinthian church. So they had taken uh idols into their hearts. So this tips you off as to their heart attitude. 
Nevertheless, they're still sort of playing the game a little bit. Hey, Zeke, you know, tell us what you think about this. And so God says, notice verse 4, this is telling. God says in verse 4, essentially that he's going to answer them in keeping with their great idolatry. Therefore, speak to them, says, say, thus says the Lord, anyone of the house of Israel who makes his idols, who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of iniquity before his face, and yet comes the prophet, and I will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold, notice the purpose, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. So this this is actually very important because this tells us what God's, regardless of what God is doing, we know what God's intention is. Even if we, even if there's ambiguity in what God is doing, there's clarity in God's motive. When you're reading scripture, by the way, and something confuses, you always look for that which doesn't. And that will sometimes clear up a lot of things. God's intention is he's going to answer them in keeping with their great idolatry, and he wants to recapture their hearts. So then, going to verses 6 to 8, and again, this is leading up to the text that was submitted. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, repent, turn away from your idols, turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel, in other words, the Gentiles who come to faith and participate in the covenant promises, who prepares himself for me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet to consult him. So notice he's doing this, and yet comes to the prophet to consult through uh, him, me through him. I, the Lord, will answer him myself. God takes personal offense to this, and so he answers him himself. And this is where he says in verse 8, I will set my face against him. I will make him a sign and a byword. I will cut him off from the midst of his people. There's a s- several like nasty punishments listed there. That you shall know that I am the Lord. So all of that is, okay, God is like the jealous husband or wife who finds out that their hus- husband or wife is having multiple affairs on them and is enjoying it but it's coming to them and sort of trying to benefit from the marital blessings with them. And this, this is repulsive to God. God is disgusted by it. He's going to punish him. He's going to do everything within, from the perspective of the spouse, within his power to make them pay for it. But his motivation, again, is that they might repent. That's his motivation. He's even going, he, so then coming into the text that we're looking at, verses 9 and 10, He's even going to go so far as to use the prophet to bring deceit upon the people so, again, they might wallow in their sin to a greater degree. Now, we don't know. um, Another student was asking a question just just after the break. Um, I acknowledge the fact that it is awkward and sometimes difficult to understand the degree to which God causes sin, brings about sin, because we have to guard this idea that God doesn't sin. Okay, so there's there's not a lot of specificity in the text that tells us how that all works. Somehow God is guarding himself. He doesn't actually do the sin, but at the same time, there's words like make in the text. 
So uh, we could maybe explain this in several ways, and these are just sort of options for us. One way of viewing it, and you've got to sort of follow the train of logic here, uh, starts with the presupposition that God is good. What God does is good. And second to that, God is creator, so he creates life. Third, he is creator and he's good, so he sustains life. Anything good ultimately comes in some way from God. So, if he's creator and sustainer and the one who brings life, then, to use a spatial term, if he steps back, there's reduced life from those he stepped back from. Um, if he vacates the scene, then you're dead or you're in a state of perpetual death, which probably is the notion we're supposed to have when it comes to hell. The thing that makes hell terrible is that it's the complete absence of the giver of life, meaning that it's like you're in a state of ongoing death, which is portrayed in the scripture using fire and darkness and worm that never dies and all sorts of nasty stuff. So one could say that uh, one of the ways God deceives or makes a person to sin is he steps back. And the inevitable um, <coughs> result is that which is not good, that which is sinful, that which is evil. When he steps forward, that's then pushed away and there's greater life and vitality and goodness that is brought into the mix. So one could understand it that way. Um, one could also understand it from the perspective of the parent who has disciplined their child so many times, is driving them nuts, it's not working. So they actually create some sort of a disciplinary tactic. So the kid or the teenager, whoever it might be, sins more for a season of time in order to more quickly bring that child to the point where they realize that what they're doing is wrong or destructive. So an example of that might be um, when I was a young teenager, a couple of my younger siblings were caught smoking. So my mom's like, I've told you this. You're not smoking. You shouldn't be smoking. I've told you this 25 times. I'm going to go buy a carton of cigarettes, and you're going to smoke them all. And uh, so they had to sit in these chairs in our basement and smoke this cart of cigarettes with the windows open. But we told all the kids in the neighborhood, so they all came and watched. <laughs> but, and I'm not sure it worked, but the idea there is, okay, you're going to do it, I'm going to really make you do it, and then, you, then you'll be disgusted by it. So there, there could be that kind of a, a tactic by God, where it's like, okay, you want to do it, just go for it. In fact, I'm going to somehow bring about events so that you'll really get into it, and then you'll see how disgusting and repulsive it is. So these are just ideas I'm presenting. I don't want you to say this is how it works because ultimately we don't know. But I see in the text that God is in some way, shape, or form uh, ensuring that the words that are spoken by the prophet are false words. And the purpose there is not to highlight evil or bring about greater evil. It's to bring about repentance, which is clearly God's motive.
so um, God, in a sense, uses false prophecy to um, teach his people a lesson. Don't use me. Don't use me for your own purposes. And it works because God manifests then his uh, jealous wrath, his covenantal love toward his people. And through the deceit of the prophets who ultimately give the people false direction, God punishes them and reminds them of the inappropriateness in the dead-end street that one finds themselves on whenever they worship another god. So God deceives, but perhaps in the sense of confounding and confusing them, because deception is the inevitable thing that replaces an absence of truth. So God is truth. God withdraws what is left, not truth but untruth. And um, so that's the purpose of God's intentions there. So when we're looking at grading this, I, I, like I, I'm, I'm 100% sure I know what God's intentions are. I'm not as sure that I understand how the precise way in which God allows, permits, brings about, makes, whatever word you want to use, the prophet to deceive his people while guarding his own um, sinlessness, but he does it somehow. I know this sounds crazy, but it could be almost like a police officer. You know, you have the law, and the law says this is what the law is, and if you do what's right, you're protected. If you don't do what's right, and suddenly you, people will say we're just killing, doing whatever they want to do, and the police say, okay, fine, we're, we're moving out of town. You're no longer going to have protection. Yeah. Like, we're not making you sin, we're not making you kill people, but if mm -hmm. that's what you want to do, we're just going to move out of town. Yeah, and, and I think, I think we, we would all feel comfortable with that. What we're wrestling with a little bit is the language of the text, which when read a certain way, seems to be a little more uh, categorical than that. So you look back at the text, and again, this is the English Bible, of course, different translations. I think I was reading the NIV. It's a little different. Just this line, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. That's where we're like, okay, what, what does that actually look like? Like, is the, does God say, I've deceived the prophet We'd probably feel uncomfortable saying you know, he's somehow entered into and is speaking untruth through the prophet. It's probably a little out of bounds if we're going to try to guard God's holiness. Um, but maybe we shouldn't make so much of this precision of the language there, and we should be understanding it more from a conceptual level, if you're following me here, along the lines of what you're suggesting, Bonnie and which I think I'm posing as an option, in that when God withdraws, that's what the result is. But again, we are left with language that read by itself seems to say a little more than that. But I don't think we should be too concerned about it because 
back to my initial statement, this is the same kind of language when it says God hardens the heart. Yeah, so God hardens the heart, but the people already hardened their own hearts. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart again. Pharaoh hardened his heart again. Pharaoh hardened his heart again. God hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens his heart. So there, I and mean, again, we have God hardening the hearts of those who have hardened their hearts against him. So here we could say, I suppose, God deceives those who have already deceived, deceived themselves, or God allows them to be deceived is a way of understanding it because they've already chosen to deceive themselves. In fact, they've actually, it's, it's quite disgusting, their conduct, if you think about it, because they're actually coming to a man of God and they are asking for his prophetic advice. They're asking for him to tell them, what does Yahweh God have for us? Knowing full well that Yahweh God has a monopoly on who God is and at the same time are harboring love in their hearts for other gods. Please clear this up for us, Sammy. Yeah, I, I think, I don't disagree with anything you've said, because maybe you've said it in a more succinct way, but that's what I've been trying to say. Oh. And, you know, uh, in, in terms of looking at, um, you know, the, the Egyptian pharaoh texts, we'd also looked at those earlier, as well as tonight, referenced them, and it's the same kind of thing. I mean, it, they're very, I mean, it does mean that, everything you've just said. We're just kind of wondering, does it mean something else, too? Yes. How can your words mean anything? Yes. Oh, it, it does mean that. 
It absolutely does mean that. But I think the submitter of the question, again, back, back to our, whoever submitted this question, I think, was ultimately asking the question, what, when it says God deceives, how does that actually work? We know what the purpose of the text is. How does that work, and how does God guard his goodness? And how can we say God is not the originator of evil? And the text seems to suggest he's, like, doing it. So that's just a little bit of a, you know, a, a, the awkward part of the text, even though what you've said, what Sam has said, is true. I believe it to be true, and I know what the purpose of it is. Um, Mark, you wanted to maybe... Uh-huh. Lord allow the prophet to speak false wisdom yes. to a king, and one prophet speaks the truth and he's thrown in jail. Yeah. But his prophecy comes true. Yeah. And there's yeah. war. And God's purposes are ultimately served. It was to judge Ahab. Yeah. Yeah. It sure, certainly shouldn't su- certainly certainly should not surprise us whenever uh people have false ideas any more than it should surprise us when Prophets have false ideas. There's lots of scripture texts, both covenants, that speak of being careful about false prophets. False prophets are false teachers. It's the same thing. We often think of prophecy just as future. Most of it's not. It's actually present or it's even historical. But yeah. Good. Okay, one more comment. Yeah. Yeah. And again, one one easy way of explaining it, but this is just my explanation. The text doesn't actually say this, but one way of understanding it in light of our the rest of our theology is to say because God is truth, is the source of truth, just as he's the source of life, just as he's the source of blessing. When he steps back or is removed, what is left in God's place? The opposite. Darkness, death, and in this case, deception. We could understand it that way. And I I, I actually have found it quite helpful to view the lake of fire and eternal punishment that way, that when God removes himself fully from human existence, you are left with hell. And in the ultimate state of things, you know, the worm that never dies, this is an, it's like you're in a, I don't believe in annihilation, I believe in eternal conscious torment, but it's not like you're sort of alive and just having a really rough time of it. It's, it's more like you're in a state of perpetual dying or death, which, which is, you know, I, it's interesting that Christians write a lot of material and have a lot of conversations about whether there's literally going to be fire there or not. I don't really care. Um, it's not that I don't believe in it, but I, it's not really the point. The point is not, are you going to get burnt or not? That's not the point of it. The point is God's not going to be there. Do you have any idea what that's going to be like? No, you don't. Because God is sustaining you. And so whether the biblical writer chooses to use the word at time, the metaphor of darkness, which he does, and other times the metaphor of hell, you can get into all kinds of conversations. Well, how can there be darkness when there's fire? Because fire brings light. That's, okay, well, have those conversations. 
have those conversations, but don't miss the forest for the trees. And the point is, when the goodness of God is removed from the scenes, what are you left with? When the creator vacates the scene, when the life giver vacates the scene, when the one who alone can bring about spiritual rebirth vacates the scene, what are you left with? You're left with ongoing death. Whether that's portrayed through burning fire or absolute darkness or a worm that never dies, what is the, the, the core underlying issue there? Humanity is eternal. The soul is eternal. And the soul is either going to enjoy eternal life or eternal dying. And that's what makes it horrendous. Yeah, I mean, God has never fully been absent from this world or we wouldn't be here. But in terms of degrees, he steps back, there's deception there that's, that settles in. So let's just look briefly at um, one more text. I should be able to touch down on this one fairly quick, even though it may seem at first complicated. It's really not. Uh, we can't deal with all of the uh, details in it, but someone submitted Daniel 9, 24 to 27. This is set in a s several chapters per pertaining to future prophecy from, this is very cr critical, from the perspective of a 6th century B.C. prophet. So, when you're reading prophecy, and you're looking at aspects of prophecy, which are future, which is the minority of prophecy. So, if this is prophecy, you know, this much of it is about the future. This much of it is about reminding you of the past and what God has already said. Just read the prophets. It's mostly just reminding you what God's already said. But there is an aspect at times they prophesy about the future. So Daniel, 6th century, what we call B.C. So here's the cross. He's prophesying ahead, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And um, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come like a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decree, decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, I mean, to fully understand every aspect of this, we would need a course studying Daniel. But I can just give you a, uh, in fact, this whole course could just be on prophecy. Raywin would like that. But um, let me just make a few comments about this specific passage. So the word here for weeks, Shaboa, this is in English letters, uh, means years. So it's understood 
as years. How do we know that? You look at chapter 12, verse 11, and it records the last Shaboah as having a half-life, a half-life of 1,290 days, which equals 3.5 years. So one whole Shaboah then is seven years. So when he talks about um, a week, 70 weeks, he's talking about 70 sets of seven-year periods. And um, Daniel then understood, if you look at verse 24, he understood that the 70 years, which are unrelated to the 70 weeks, look at verse uh, 24, Um, is probably coming to an end. So the, the 70 weeks are decreed about your people to finish transgression, put an end. So the mindset is that the 70 years of captivity, so they go in in 586, so whatever, subtract 70, I guess that would be about 516 BC, is about to come to an end. And there's a decree issued um, so the decree says from the issuing of the decree, Cyrus's decree to return till rebuilding Jerusalem is uh, seven sevens. So this is uh, 49 years. And then, so to rebuilding Jerusalem, which didn't take place in a day, but during this period, then he says there's going to be 62 sevens, so 62 times 7, so that gives you 434 years. Um, so this total period of time then is 483 years. And if you actually understand the dates of this and date it to the coming of Christ, or the birth of Christ, um, using the BCAD timetable, <coughs> recognizing that there's a little bit of error in our BCAD time schedule and that Christ was not born at zero. He was born between 3 and 7 BC. That's a historical fact that the guy who came up with BCAD later on made a mathematical error. So it says, to the coming of the anointed one, Okay, so the coming of the anointed one, there's three phrases. He talks about the anointed one coming. He then talks about the anointed one being cut off. And, of course, this would be messianic reference to the anointed one, meaning Christ. Christ means anointed one, the messianic ruler. So he comes, he's cut off. So this is reference to the period of time within which Christ lives. So the first uh, 69 sevens lead up to the Christ event. And then he says the people of the, the people of the ruler will destroy the city. So this is this could easily be marked as the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Then this is the key thing. He then says the end will come like a flood. Or desolations will come depending on the translation. This one says its end shall come like a flood. So there's 
one seven sixty two sevens. Look at verse 26. After the 62 weeks, meaning 62 times seven years, an anointed one shall be cut off, shall have nothing. The people, the prince, shall destroy the city sanctuary. So that happened in 70 AD. This is history now. And then it says, its end shall come like a flood, and to the end there shall be war. So as I read this, I believe that this is the period of time within which we are now living, from the time of the destruction of the temple to the end times. But there's one more seven one more week, meaning one more seven-year interval that is yet to come. And those of us that are premillennialists would say that's what we call the seven-year tribulation. And uh, this begins with a ruler, some sort of a ruler who is a uh, type of the ruler that cut off the anointed one and the ruler that destroyed the temple. So this is some sort of an antichrist type ruler confirms the covenant. Notice it says, he shall make a covenant with many for one week. This is where we find the 70th week. And for half of the week, he shall put an, an end to sacrifice. So many of us believe then that for half, at the halfway point of the tribulation, he will somehow set up what we call an abomination of desolation. He will desecrate Jerusalem or the people of God. And on the wing of the abominations shall, shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So this, this period, this seven-year tribulation period, we have at the beginning a ruler confirming a covenant, middle of it, setting up an abomination, and then the end will come uh, like a flood. So, uh, this is getting a little sloppy here, but it, this period from Daniel to Christ and the destruction of the temple is the 69 sevens. And then there's a, uh, an in, uh, indeterminate period of time. It says the end will come like a flood. And then one more seven. And three, a three-staged event three stages of events that will take place during that period of time. So this is why um, typically we would say that's what we call the tribulation period, which fits in the events that are recorded for us in, uh, let me think now, Revelation 4 through to Revelation 19. And if you look at sort of the prophecies in Revelation 4 to 19, we see some of this, this, this we see this broad prophecy of Daniel being given more detail and specificity. We learn more about who that ruler is and whatnot, the Antichrist and so forth. So again, lots to be said there. Um, the passage is figurative, but it also is meant to mean something. And so in terms of, if you're asking a question about the timeline, this is how I would understand the, the timeline of Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses 24 to 27. Okay, now we are over time, so you're welcome to leave. But if you have any questions about this, I'll, I will uh, be more than happy to take them. Specific to this. Okay, well then, uh, have a good week. And uh, again, I will be away for a week, but unfortunately it will take up two Tuesdays. So we will not have class for the next two Tuesdays, but then we'll come back.
So have a good night.